How does it feel to finally be free? I wonder if I'll ever know. Sometimes I dream of how that can be to have a life that I own. Welcome to the Folding Chair Podcast, hosted by me, Osiris Bali, and powered by the Arkansas Public Policy Panel. This is a special edition about storytelling with our guest, Jose Alon. Storytelling, the oral tradition. It's important that we stress this to our children because storytelling teaches about important cultural and moral lessons. From the village griot, to the poet, to the MC, to the authors and writers, they paint a picture for the world that shows humanity. You're listening to Tales by the River, powered by the City of Little Rock's Racial and Cultural Diversity Commission. Tales by the River is an innovative way for Little Rock residents to share their unique stories and experiences. This story is about Jose Alon, a husband and father of three, who enjoyed a 41-year career in Arkansas government. He's a recent retiree and a former commissioner for the Little Rock Racial and Cultural Diversity Commission. Tales by the River, we're interviewing Jose Alon, Tell me, Hosea, what year were you born and where were you born? I was born in 1950 uh, in Cross County, Arkansas. It's over in the eastern part of the state in Wynn, a little small town called Wynn. And where do you currently reside? I live in Little Rock. And before you retired, what was your occupation? Well, I retired uh, nine years ago as the associate uh, vice chancellor for uh, HR with the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. Uh, I was there for 23 years. Uh, all of my career has been, been in Arkansas state government. Uh, before UMS, I worked in work with UALR and HR. I probably worked in about 12 or 15 different state agencies uh, from the time I graduated college in 1973 until the time I retired. And how long have you been a resident in Little Rock? Been living in Little Rock since 1976. And why do you think it's important that we cultivate an environment in Little Rock that encourages community empowerment and upliftment? Well, I think it's important uh, for a number of reasons. I think number one is that, you know, down through my uh, uh, my career, I've seen cases or where people come into communities, into neighborhoods, and they want to, um, you know, be involved in community involvement, but it doesn't work unless the community members themselves are empowered to bring about change on their own. Uh, you know, the people in the community, they know what their needs are better than any outside influence. And the only issue oftentimes it boils down to, they don't have an avenue they don't know exactly how uh, to bring about change. And so I think uh, educating them about uh, how they, they can affect change uh, is, is important. And that education, uh, that knowledge empowers them and they can go about being involved and in bringing about change on their own. I, th I th think that's important. And why did you apply to the city of Little Rock's Racial and Cultural Diversity Commission? Well, I, I first became aware of uh, 
this concept of diversity and inclusion back in the latter part of the 1980s. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a study done, God, I can't remember. Oh, I can't remember the institute that did it, but <clears throat> I remember reading a report about how America was becoming more and more diverse, uh, you know, through the process of immigration. We had people coming from uh, places other than Europe and that uh, this was setting up uh, a stage, if you will, where uh, uh, places of employment were more diverse, communities were, were more, more diverse, and quite frankly, it didn't seem like uh, uh, America was preparing itself to address this diversity. And that's when I first became aware of it. And I was working at uh, UALR at the time in the Human Resources Department. Well, when I ended up going to work for UAMS uh, in 1991, I stepped into an institution that was like no other institution in Arkansas state government. Um, UMS had ju just, uh, uh, during the latter part of the 1980s, they were experiencing a nursing shortage and they went and recruited a lot of nurses from the Philippines and they had employees from all over the globe. I'd never worked in an environment like that. And mm. it really energized me to be involved in this issue of diversity and inclusion. And at the time, UMS didn't have anything out of the HR department to even address that, to figure out how to serve a diverse uh, employee workforce. And so I got together with my boss and we set up um, a diversity and inclusion, um, how should I put it, service, if you will. And we started to address that issue. Uh, that was in 1991, the early part of the 90s. And we went to, uh, we made a proposal to have a uh, diversity and inclusion coordinator, if you will, facilitator. And uh, we uh, hired that person. And that was the start of the, what you find now at UMS, they have an entire division mm -hmm. uh, with uh, uh, a vice chancellor. Uh, for diversity and inclusion. That was the beginning of that, quite frankly. And, uh, you know, I don't take a lot of credit for it, but it was the start. And so when I retired, I was looking around for something to volunteer in. And I thought diversity and inclusion work makes sense, you know, because I had been doing that work for years. And that prompted me to apply uh, to the Little Rock Racial and Cultural Diversity Commission uh, to sort of continue my work in that area. Were your parents or grandparents involved in any civil rights movements? No, Osiris. I, I came from a very poor background. I <clears throat> used to joke about a lot of the fact that we were so, we were dirt poor. We were so poor we couldn't even afford dirt. Mm. Uh, my grandparents, uh, my, uh, my pater paternal grandparents, uh, fraternal grandparents, at least. My father was uh, the uh, baby of 13 siblings, and he was 10 years older than my mom. And uh, they were, uh, you know, sort of sharecroppers. My maternal grandparents, uh, they owned 80 acres of land over in Cross County. Uh, 
there wasn't a lot of education, quite frankly. These were people who went through the depression and, you know, they were just survivors. The main thing they were uh, interested in was just trying to get uh, through each day, put food on the table and take care of themselves. Uh, I was the first one in my uh, family on the, uh, to go to college, quite frankly. And, uh, and so, you know, there wasn't a history of uh, community involvement and education, that sort of thing. These were just uh, people who worked hard. Uh, they were God-fearing people, and they were just trying to survive from day to day. Hosea, you're somebody that I consider a leader, and you're a unique individual as well. Uh, you moved here from a rural area when, and you've been in Little Rock for many years now. Why did you choose to apply for the commission and basically put yourself in a leadership position in the community? Well, you know, I, I don't want to sound braggadocious or anything, but, you know, I've sort of served in leadership roles for, for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, stepping in, uh, on, to, on the commission, well, I basically saw the commission as the opportunity to do some, some important work, uh, to try to work to bring uh, various segments of the community together to focus on, you know, one goal, and that goal, of course, being uh, inclusion. Mm-hmm. We both know that diversity is a natural thing. I mean, we don't create diversity. Uh, you can go uh, and look at any group, uh, be it a black church, a white church, or whatever. There's diversity within the group. Diversity is a natural thing. You have males, you have females, you have people uh, leaning to one political direction or the other. So diversity is natural. But the challenge is trying trying to, uh, to create an inclusive environment where everybody will be able to have a seat at the table, if you will, and uh, benefit from the bounty, whatever that bounty is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had been doing that kind of work with UMS. I'd done a little of it with ULR. And I figured, well, that's a perfect thing for me to volunteer for uh, with the city of Little Rock. Now, I was mindful of the fact, though, that working uh, at least volunteering to do this kind of work in a city is distinctly different from working in an organization like an educational institution, uh, you know, uh, because these are institutions that are kind of, you know, self-contained. They have uh, that certain kind of political activity, but they're different from working in a city. And I, I was totally aware of that, but I didn't let that stop me because I figured that I had something to offer. And so I went ahead and applied. I had, uh, I had uh, decided I wanted to do that uh, before I retired, but I did take a few years off to sort of rest and uh, get my bearings before I actually applied for the position uh, with the commission. Okay, okay. And uh, another reason why I call you a leader is because of your inspirational story. It's a powerful lesson to, uh, to so many. Uh, you shared with me your personal journey about growing up in Krause County, Arkansas, but you also shared with me your journey with being a cancer survivor of multiple myeloma. Uh, do you also say that that was part of your inspiration for wanting to be more of an asset to your community than you already were? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think my experience with cancer taught me something. I, you know, I was diagnosed uh, with multiple myeloma uh, 
um, in the year 2000. And um, I was 49 years old. And I was a person who had been involved and in, <clears throat> I've always been, been active physically. You know, I used to get up every day at five o'clock and run five miles and, and I would work out with weights and stuff like that. And so when I got that diagnosis, I mean, it was, I, we were hard to hear this uh, saying about, you know, the world stopped. Well, when I got that uh, that diagnosis, my world literally stopped at that point in time. I remember I was in the doctor's office with my wife and my oldest child. Um, but and, and I was depressed for for a while, not that long. Uh, I figured, you know, I can't I can't afford to be depressed. You know, whether I have cancer or I don't have cancer, I've got to live my life. You know, I'm still breathing. I got to get up in the morning and comb my hair. I did have hair back then. Uh, comb my hair, brush my teeth or whatever. I, I didn't even think about uh, uh, applying for disability, stuff like that. A lot of people that get cancer diagnosis like mine, they start uh, thinking about, am I going to be able to work? I didn't ask that question about myself. I, uh, I was working at UMS at the time I got the diagnosis. I used to literally go to work uh, with my chemo bag attached to me. Uh, I'd get up from my office and walk over to the clinic for treatment and come back and go to work. Uh, you may think that is a sign of leadership. I, maybe it is. I, but at some point, I began to realize that uh, the fact that I was continuing to work, uh, continuing to serve in demanding roles with cancer, uh, and someone told me one day, you know, you have a testimony to share. You need to be sharing it with people. At some point, I started to realize that we all have stories to tell. And our stories can be an inspiration for others, even if we aren't aware of it. And I don't want to sound egotistical by saying that. But I remember I used to go and sit in clinic uh, years after my, my diagnosis when I was doing pretty well. And there'd be some person in there from uh, California, for instance, who'd come to UMS for treatment. And one person would be back in the clinic and the spouse would be sitting out in the waiting room and I'd strike up a conversation with them. And they'd look at me and they say, you have multiple myeloma? Like, yeah, I sure do, you know? And the spouse would come out of the clinic and this, this person would say, uh, hey, honey, you know, this guy over here, He's got multiple myeloma too. He doesn't look sick. And it started to dawn on me that uh, that me sharing my story with people about my cancer uh, can be a real benefit to others. Um, I, I, uh, I'm an active participant in um, a multiple myeloma Facebook page. Uh, and it's, it, it always amazes me how somebody is on that page and they're looking for some support. They may have just been recently diagnosed. And I started to share my story with them of uh, survivorship of 10, 15, 20 years plus. And you can almost see the excitement come through on the Facebook page that these people are saying, you know, that really gives me hope. And so, Osiris, there are a lot of things that have happened in my life that uh, I take it as 
as a very strong blessing. And, uh, and I think it's stuff that has to be shared with other people uh, because, you know, it provides inspirations to them. Uh, and I try, it, it had nothing to do with my ego. It has to do with the fact that you know, God has blessed me in a number of ways, and I, I need to share that uh, with others. Does that, that answer make any sense? I, I, I'm kind of rambling. I know that. No, you're definitely not rambling. I think you have a powerful testimony, and uh, you should be sharing a testimony with others as a sign of hope because uh, you being a survivor definitely gives others that inspiration to keep on going. And I'm going to share something else with you. Multiple myeloma is a, a type of cancer, as a lot of chronic ailments are. It impacts African-Americans and Latinos at a higher rate than it does anybody else in this country. And oftentimes, uh, this is a group of people who don't seek the kind of help that they need. Either they don't seek it or they can't afford it. They don't have insurance to pay for it. Um, I've seen a number of uh, African-Americans die with multiple myeloma because they don't seek the kind of treatment they need because you know what they hang on? They hang on the, um, uh, uh, what was it? The, uh, the, the syphilis studies that were done, uh, Tuskegee Institute stuff, that still is in our, in our memory DNA. Uh -huh. And the kind of treatment I got was, it was from researchers. It was clinical trials. It didn't, and, and I can remember my oncologist telling me one day, saying, I wish we had more black people in these clinical trials uh, because, you know, multiple myeloma does impact us at a higher rate, but it's impact us differently than it does others. And they just want to go for study. You know, I, I don't think I would be here today if it hadn't been for, uh, you know, God blessing me. And of course, uh, being involved in the kind of research that UMS is involved in. Yes, that's definitely important. We need to have more conversations about looking at the healthcare industry through a racial equity lens. But you mentioned that you moved here to Little Rock in 1976. I want to know personally, since 1976, how has Little Rock changed and what do you look forward to as far as Little Rock growing? Well, um, man, that is such, uh, such a, a broad question. I, when I look at the educational system, I remember when I moved to Little Rock, um, I'll give you one example. Uh, oh, God. Uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of schools. The school is out in uh, oh, out in Southwest Little Rock. Uh, what is it called? Um, yes, I think you're referring to JFL High School, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, anyway, this school was a part of the county school, and uh, my oldest child graduated from there. And when she went to school there, there was uh, a kind of an equal mix of white and black students because it was in the county. Actually, I think the majority of students were white. And you had an active uh, student uh, uh, PTA organization. And now uh, when my uh, uh, I had some my younger kid, uh, I think, as a matter of fact, all three of my kids graduated from that. Uh, when my son graduated, he's 30 years old now. Now it's a part of the city. And that school is totally different. But I, I, I've seen a change with some of the schools. I mean, some of the ones when I moved over here that had a good mixture of kids racially, now they're totally black. 
Uh, I've seen changes in uh, state government, for instance. I've seen when I came to Little Rock uh, in 76, you got to keep in mind, it was in the 60s that a lot of the equal employment opportunity laws were put in place by the federal government. And so you got things like affirmative action and equal employment opportunity practices of employers were still fresh at that point. Mm-hmm. And so when I came to Little Rock, I was working in the department of, uh, it's called, they called it social services back then, now it's human services. And that was one of the organizations that was seeing an increase in, uh, in, in Black people working. Uh, during the latter part of the 70s, uh, I ended up working with an organization called the Department of Local Services. I think it was, no, it was, no, it was the 80s, I believe. And uh, that was an interesting organization I was working in. Uh, local services doesn't exist anymore. And it was set up to be a bridge between the federal government and local governments by helping direct monies from the federal government to local go- governments for things like water projects and, uh, and things like that. And local services ha- had more black people working in it per capita than any other state agency. You had uh, sub-grant administrators. I was the HR uh, director at that point in time. And I remember when Frank White did all this is long before your time, when Frank, Frank White, a Republican, became governor, one of the first things he did was abolish the Department of Local Services. And I always felt that he did that. It was a, as a, as a I, don't, I, I can surmise why he did it. I can guess, I can speculate. But when we lost that organization, we lost a lot uh, in state government. So I, I've seen changes in, uh, you, know, I, you know, I remember when I did the, um, the little workshop that uh, Amber Jackson had set up, uh, what was it? Uh, and what was that thing called? Those labs? You remember those equity labs? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I participated in those. I found myself surprised that a lot of people who were on those calls were blacks. And that wouldn't have been the case when I first came uh, to Little Rock. Mm-hmm. And they were young black women uh, in positions of authority, working with various uh, social uh, um uh, and community support type organizations around Little Rock. And so, you know, I, I, I've seen more opportunities open up. There's still a need for more. But I think now I see more African-Americans and not only that, but more Latinos uh, in positions that you didn't see the men when I came uh, mm-hmm. to work uh, in Little Rock back in 76. They just weren't there. Gotcha. So what improvements would you like to see in the city of Little Rock? I think one one of the big things that I think a lot of us, if if we're honest with, uh, is the public school system. Yeah. Public school system needs a lot of improvement. Uh, My wife and I were just talking before I got on this call, and we were saying, you know, school starts August the 16th. Looks like they're adding more time. They're putting more uh, standards and requirements in place. Uh, 
I don't know. It, it, it sort of bothers me sometimes when I used to volunteer at uh, an elementary school just down from my church. And I'd go in there and all I'd see, this is a, a public school in Central Little Rock. All I see are kids who look like me. You know, it's like, how can you prepare a child, be they black or white, to work uh, when they get into adulthood in a diverse culture, working with people who are all shades, uh, you know, biologically, uh, socially, culturally, whatever. How can you prepare them when they are basically segregated? When they're in a school system that looks much like the school system that I, I attended in the 1960s and the 1970s. It's still... The old thing that was said by, uh, I forget what politician said it back in the 60s at, uh, um, what, uh, 10 o'clock or seven, uh, 11 o'clock or whatever on Sunday morning is the most segregated uh, hour in our country. That's when we all sort of uh, parse ourselves from each other and we attend church uh, uh, with people who look like us, but not only church. Uh, you take a look at those five major social institutions, religion, um, and uh, is one uh, still segregated. Education is still segregated. Uh, you know, military is not that segregated because, you know, it, we can't afford for it to be. But, you know, no matter how many times, th- uh, how much things change, they still remain the same. Essentially. I definitely feel you. Um, we do have people here in Little Rock that are trying to be the examples for social change and kind of model it for the rest of the state. How do you feel? Little Rock is a mecca for progressive thinking in Arkansas, and we're still a little bit behind, quite frankly. I was back in Wynn uh, a couple of weeks ago. I went back over there, and I had a conversation with some people who were saying, they said something to me that I didn't quite believe. They said, uh, you know, in the uh, Cross County School District, We've got less than 10 black teachers. Wow. And I, found, I, I said, are you, are you sure about that? They said, yeah. Now, I remember back in the 70s, uh, there were a lot of black teachers. Yeah. But then, then I got to thinking, these were people who were holdovers from the, uh, when they got rid of the, you know, the dual school system. Mm-hmm. A lot of these teachers were still, still working. They took them over, uh, over, and 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 put them in uh, in that system when they got rid of the black teachers. And I guess when a lot of those retired, uh, you just don't have a, a plethora of black uh, educators who want to go and teach in these small towns. Uh-huh. Yeah, I definitely think that uh, education on a public school system level definitely needs to make improvements all around Arkansas statewide. Uh, but another question I did have to ask you. Were you ever able to experience the, the rich history and culture on 9th Street in Little Rock? I kind of wish I had moved to Little Rock a little earlier so I could have experienced some, uh, some of the 9th Street uh, culture. I didn't get a chance to experience any of that at all. I got you. Well, you know, we wrapping things up, but I want to ask you uh, this right here. Why is it important for people in Little Rock to share their stories? Well, you know, it, I can just by guarantee that as you get older, uh, you're going to discover that with each decade, you begin to, you have uh, a longer period of time 
to look back on. Uh, young people don't have that benefit. And you, I, I find myself participating in re retrospectives quite a bit. And I can learn stuff from my own history that I didn't, I wasn't aware of as I was going through it. And so I find myself oftentimes, if I'm speaking with someone younger, I can share stuff with them from my story that they look at me like, wow, are you for real? Oh yeah, I'm for real, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, and, and not only that, but uh, I have a, uh, I set up a chronic illness support group, Facebook page with my church. Mm -hmm. And um, that was something I had wanted to do for a long time because I know that uh, in this country, uh, one third of the population, and we talk about, uh, you know, 330 million people do the math, uh, suffer from minor to serious chronic ailments. And so when I sit in my church of about 1,200 people, you know, we're not meeting now, but a large portion of those folk are going through all kinds of stress and strain because of certain uh, health conditions, uh, diabetes, could be suffering from some sort of mental illness, could be suffering from some sort of cancer, whatever. Uh, I set that thing up so that people could come together and share stories with each other about how they're getting uh, from one day to the next. And when we before COVID, we would meet uh, once a month and we just get in a lot of our meetings just had to do with sharing stories with each other. Uh, and I can remember uh, there was a lady whose sister was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. Mm -hmm. And when I was sharing my story with her and the stuff I went through, the fact that, you know, I almost died a couple of times that. I got sepsis and I was in a coma for seven days. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, Brother Law, are you telling me the truth? I said, Yeah. She said, Oh, man, I want to talk to you. And that woman, she would just sometimes call me and talk to me on the phone because she wanted to share my experiences, my story with her sister. Mm -hmm. And her sister was in real bad shape. She didn't live in Little Rock. Uh, but she would tell me all the time that, uh, when she would talk to her sister about what I was going through, her sister would perk up and she could see the expression on her face and she felt a lot better. I, I just think sometimes people don't really understand the value in the stories they have to share. And what is life about anyway, man, except an accumulation of experiences that we've all had as individuals and the stories that develop out of those experiences. That's what life is. You know, we go and we sit in houses of worship on Sunday morning or whatever. What do we do when we're in there? We listen to stories. Stories from the Bible. Stories about God. Stories about the experiences that people have had with their God. That's what it's all about. You know, you get politicians. Politicians understand this. How do you think they get elected? Because they figure out... Uh, the best stories to tell and how to put that spin on certain stories to get certain members of the electorate to vote for them. 
Does that make sense? <laughs> that, that, that's what it's all about. <laughs>